in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Gabby Dunn here. Who's ready for an existential crisis brought on by the harsh financial realities of a supposedly sacred cultural institution? Huh, it wouldn't be bad with money if that wasn't the case. Welcome to the show. You guys, 
Something weird happened when I turned 28 last year. I'm about to be 29. And that something is noticing babies. Not having them, just noticing them. Being fascinated by them, looking at them in the streets and on buses, trying to make them laugh. If you can make a baby laugh, that's the most pure audience you'll ever get as a comedian. So I I liked babies. I thought babies were okay. Um, My mom is a person who will like interact with a baby on a plane and stuff. And then I would make fun of her. And then I became that person where if there's a baby at a restaurant, I get distracted from the person at the restaurant with me. And I'm like, sorry, there's a baby. Um, We're waving at each other. We're like best friends. Don't worry about it. Why all of a sudden did I start noticing babies? And then I thought, well, maybe do I want to have a baby? I just was on a plane last night and there were babies on that plane. And you know what I did? Put headphones in because they weren't my babies and they weren't my problem. So it's still like on the fence, you know, but it is a weird time where it's like if I'm like dating someone and we talk about kids, I will say that I, I probably want one. I like them. I don't know. We did a JBU sketch about how I like babies. I know it's very off brand. I used to be a person who would be like no way, no how. And now I'm like, I don't know. I mean, if I feel that way now, by the time, you know, in like five years or seven years can't really predict but maybe I'll want one so this show is about choosing to have babies because that's what it should be for every person with a uterus a choice and too often it's an economic punishment that society tries to impose on low income women for having sex thereby ensuring that they and their families will remain trapped in a poverty spiral for generations The thing is, even under the most ideal circumstances, having a baby is an emotional and financial minefield. My first guest to talk about this is Anna Sale, the host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money. Anna just had a daughter named June, and while June is thankfully a happy, healthy baby, that obviously wasn't a guarantee leading up to her birth. Anna was fortunate enough to have great health insurance through her employer and great medical care, but there were still lots of uncertainties. What if June needed extra medical care? What if they didn't have enough room in their apartment for June's crib? Who the hell was going to take care of the baby while they both went back to work? Did this mean one of them just didn't have a career anymore? Anna and her husband decided to seek solace in the warm embrace of financial planning. I think money for us in that time became this proxy of like, this is like something I can control and add and subtract in a spreadsheet. And that's my way I'm going to like channel all of my anxiety. But now that June is here, Anna's discovering that no matter how well you plan, there's always going to be expenses you couldn't have predicted. I remember one thing was I was like, okay, I'm pregnant. Like, what does my insurance say about about being pregnant and prenatal costs? And I looked at my insurance and it's like, we cover prenatal appointments. And I'm like, great. So I started going to the doctor, started doing, you know, the ultrasounds that they told me that I needed, started doing the blood work. And then I got these bills and I was like, what is this for? And it turns out when your insurance says we cover prenatal visits, that means they cover you talking to your doctor while you're pregnant. It doesn't necessarily cover blood tests and scans. Um, so those would run, you know, under 100 bucks a time. But, you know, it was like a surprise bill. Um, and then you kind of get into the situation where, you know, later in pregnancy, there are scans where they're like, you know, maybe you should do this scan just to be sure and do another, you know, anatomy scan. And, and so you can make choices about like, I don't know if I need that. And also for anybody who goes back to work for any nursing mom, like when you're breastfeeding, you've got to figure out your breast pump equipment. 
the nice thing is, everyone, Obamacare is, is the law of the land right now. So that means you get a free health uh, breast pump through your health insurance. Um, so you can ask your doctor, and it's about 100 bucks, but they'll send in what you want in the mail. So I got my free breast pump. But just like little things associated with like storing breast milk and like different equipment part, like if you're going to and from home and, and you've got, you know, you're just back at work, like of of course, you like forget little pieces here or there, and then you can't pump. And um, so, I think I probably spent um, at least like over two hundred dollars just on like extra parts. If I like went on a work trip and like forgot the key thing that enabled me to pump, is this interesting to you? I feel like it's like so. Yeah, no, yeah, talk. it is. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's so mundane, like the the little things you have to spend money on. No, it's not because I wouldn't like think of it, right? Like in most movies and TV shows, the person has the baby and then you see them have the baby and then they're just like the, the baby the credits roll happy. Yeah, the credits <laughs> yeah. roll or like you see like some, you know, I think like neighbors, the first like neighbors movie was like the first time that there was like anything about a woman pumping breast milk. Like you just, or it's like used as a joke, like, oh, she's got a pump. She's got to go to the bathroom and pump or whatever it is. Like it's, it's never, I don't know that I've seen like any realistic depiction of like, this is what it costs and this is what I'm doing. And, and then, but then you go into it and you're like, I'm 28 and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll, I have a baby. What is that? Well, I just like put yeah. the baby in my living room. <laughs> like if you think about it, it's like, where the fuck is that baby going to go? There's no place for that baby to live. Like here? What I are you me- talking about? I told that's what I would say all the time in Brooklyn. I was like, I don't know if we're moving before or after the baby, but like I, we don't have a place to put this thing if we stay here. Like we have a we've got a nice closet. Someone I don't remember who I was talking to, but someone was telling me that like they left the hospital and they like took the baby with them out of the hospital and they were like, oh, you're just going to let me like I can just like this. I could take this home. I know you're like, oh, shoot, I'm pregnant. This baby's coming. We, we got to make sure we buy that car seat. And the car seat was like, I don't remember how much the car seat was, like 200 bucks or something. And then the car seat sits in a box. And then it was like, we've got to figure out how to put this thing in our vehicle before we have an infant. And so like, I remember Arthur, my husband, like, I think we did a trial run with the car seat. And then we had the car seat in the car for when the baby was coming home. And this is like a two day old little tiny baby. And like the nurse came came down with me and we walked to the car and and she looks at like the way Arthur has like you know set up the car seat in the car and she's like hang on a minute and she just like gets down and it's like tightening this and pulling this and didn't and like it was completely not put <laughs> like correctly installed and then she's like okay now ready for the baby and we walk on the baby and we drive off and we're on our own like that was totally overwhelming like it's like, not like it's not like i'm gonna like if i got pregnant right now i would be like oh there's a windfall of money the congratulations on your pregnancy here's ten thousand dollars like that's not how it works like no that baby well, would the, like live here yeah that's well the, the thing that i think is actually kind of i didn't expect this at all like at a certain point in your pregnancy you're like oh man like i guess i'm gonna have like a baby shower and like do like what's that gonna look like for me like you know there's a certain like do i make like a registry or like what kind of baby things do i tell people that i need and then you go online and you're like looking at the different baby blogs and there's basically um if you want the like really nice baby stuff here's this list if you want the like 
kind of nice stuff. Here's this listen. If you're super budget and a bad parent, like get the cheap stuff. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, all sort of like secretly cheap, judgmental. Yeah. And if you get something cheap, then it's like, did you cause your baby's death by getting this cheap thing? <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and then it's but also it's all about like status and, how you know, what you want to look like when you're you know pushing your stroller around your your fancy neighborhood so you can show that you're like a fancy parent. Um, the other thing you see in movies is like everybody sets up their nursery and gets their like little crib set up and their little diaper changing table. And actually, the doctors tell you to like have her sleep in the room with you for her first six months and maybe up to the whole first year. So you don't need this like whole extra little room for your baby if you can figure out a quiet place for the baby to nap. Um, and and then the other thing I didn't really fully expect is like. I think having a baby, something like old fashioned gets triggered that's really cool. Like it's the first time that people have been like, oh, my God, I have all this stuff that we don't need anymore. And like just like the hand me down economy like really gets activated in a wonderful, cool way. I have bought my baby, I think, two items of clothing her entire life and the rest have been things that other people have either given us as gifts or in a lot of hand-me-downs. And so I look at her crazy outfits and it's like, oh, my God, who, who, whose taste is this? Because it's not my taste. Like, it, it's like she has like these clothes that, like, she looks like she, like, it, it's com- like she has completely different clothes personalities from day to day because she has all these clothes from so many different kinds of people. How, how are you approaching uh, saving for her? Oh, God. <laughs> it's a nightmare it's all a nightmare yeah well I, that's like the thing that I'm we are in the process right now on, on on my show on death sex and money we're we're asking people to tell us their student loan stories so we're getting all of these emails from people talking about the impact of what it was you know now these bills that they didn't fully grasp at the time and like how expensive college actually was and all the ways it's affecting their lives into their 30s and even their 40s and there's real pain and real suffering and a real sense of like holy shit I had no idea what I was getting into and and so I'm reading these emails as I have a kid that I have not started saving for college for and part of my thinking has been like okay my kid's going to go to public school at some point I'm not going to have to like shell out all of this money for childcare, and then we'll have this like money that we can put into savings for her. But right now we have to shell out all this money for childcare. I don't know if it's the right thing. Probably we should start like at least saving a little bit. So we're putting money away for her, but that's what we're right now. My main investment in June is paying an arm and a leg for childcare. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And I mean, there was a bunch of stuff of like taking off work. Like I know my mom took off work for me, did you guys have, was there like income problems with that or you just had maternity or? Well, that's actually something that I think is like, that was some of the most interesting and important money conversations I had with my employer. If you work at a company, if you're not a freelancer, like there's that time window when you know you're pregnant, but you haven't told your boss and you're trying to figure out when is the right time to reveal it and, you know, all that stuff. So I think I was like, after my first trimester, I told my boss and, and I was like, so what, you know, I'm pregnant, like, what, what's the maternity leave policy and like, how do I do this? And I mean, it, I had like such a good deal. I, I had a bunch of sick leave because I had been with the company for, for a few years. Um, 
And so I was able to take off four months fully paid. What it ended up being is, I don't know how all companies do it, but for WNYC, I went on disability for 10 weeks because I had a C-section. So you're officially disabled. It's like um, short-term disability. And so that means that it was this weird combination of the company that does our disability insurance for employees paid me. I think the disability covered like, I can't remember, what 60% or 40% of my of my salary, and then WNYC made up the difference. And then after that ten, first 10 weeks, um, WNYC has parental leave. So it's like actual leave that's like specific to having a new baby. Um, so I just made the decision to just take four months off because um, it's, it's what kind of felt right for me. Um, but that is like my deal, such a sweet deal, and is so unusual for women in America. The idea that I got to take off work and have my job protected and keep getting my paycheck was so important because the reality for most women is maybe if you work for a company that's big enough that has, you know, Family Medical Leave Act that protects your job for 12 weeks, you know, you could get unpaid leave. So then you're not only having a baby and taking on the risk of all the expenses that come with, like, becoming a new parent and having a newborn, you're also getting hit with your take-home pay being cut. This is why paid parental leave is so important. Like, the thought that, like, at a moment in your life when you are trying your most hard to to be financially stable and and to get yourself set up to be parents like the idea that then that's the moment that you take a hit in the amount of money that you're you're earning that's that's just it's cruel <laughs> sucks yeah yeah it's cruel well it's interesting like the the argument for paternity leave too because to kind of be like, no, Matt, you had this baby as well. Like, you take care of it as well. Well, and paternity leave is also about, like, attachment with your, you know, kid, kid's dad is important when there's a newborn. Like, it's it was a cool time to get to be with my husband when our baby was just born and, and to just be this, like, little threesome getting to know each other as our new family. Um I think there was some study. My husband is an academic, and and he's got so he works at UC Berkeley. And there's parental leave whether you're a parent or a, a, whether you're a mother or a father. And you can also he's on the, on the tenure track thing. So there's like this time pressure to prove that you're worthy or you don't get to you don't get tenure. And one of the things with becoming a parent is you can pause the tenure clock, which basically you can say, like, I have this new baby, so for this year I want to pause the tenure clock and focus on being a parent, and then I'm going to get back to doing whatever. Um, but I, I read a study that, like, women academics who take parental leave, like, they spend that time taking care of their babies. Um, men, <laughs> men academics who take parental leave, like, you know, are with their families, but they also are able to use some of that time to keep advancing um, in their career. And, and I think that's the reality of when you're a new parent and you are in, and one of you is a nursing parent, like if you're breastfeeding, like the, the demands on me physically were so different than the demands on my husband. I mean, and not to mention like pregnancy, like it is, it's like, that is a burden that I alone carried, like being pregnant, dealing with all of the aches and pains and, and body fears and not to mention the the health risks to my life of, of, of childbirth, that was all on me. Um, and then nursing, I was the one that was like physically completely linked to this baby. Like I could not leave the house if I didn't pump and leave 
milk in the fridge for her. You know, I couldn't leave for longer than 90 minutes, which is like not something my husband had to deal with. He could like go off and have lunch with somebody and not plan around it, you know. So so that's 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 the reality of childbirth. Like it's in our bodies. It's it is women's bodies that make babies in the world. What's weird is that I don't even know, like I just started in the, like I turned 28 and was all, all of a sudden like babies. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, uh-huh. I don't even know the right questions to ask. When I was like just out of college and, and working with in an office, I remember the thing that I would always, I was, I would like corner the women who I knew had babies because I, or had kids in school or whatever. And I would just be like, how, do you, how does this work? How do you do this? Like, what's your childcare situation like? Oh, your mom lives in town. Okay, well, that, so I was like collecting models because it just seemed so. Um, like for me, my my mom had a job growing up where she was able to be there when we got home from school. So, and I knew I had a career path that w- was probably not going to be that way, and I had no idea how that works. Um, I still don't know how that works. Like I've got a 10 month old who's not in school. Like there's a lot I have yet to learn. But the thing, so the thing about I think parenting is it's like, I think in our culture, when you are talking about becoming a parent, there is so much like attention on like pregnancy and the baby and, and like those first months and like you know, there's a lot of people giving you baby gifts in those first months. Like people are trying to take care of you. It's like when your baby turns one, the baby gifts stop coming. Like you're trying to be back at work. You're realizing, oh my God, this childcare thing is not going to go away. Like that, I think, is when like the re- like the reality hits. I mean, the other thing that I think is quite personal, and it's it's when you're of a family and you have a baby, and you're realizing how much you have to spend on childcare, and if one of you is like not earning that much money, it becomes this weird question of like, am I willing to pay basically my full salary for childcare so that I can continue to have my work identity? And I think that that's like a really personal choice. Um, For me, I knew always that work was going to continue to be important to me. Um, And also like we rely on my income and I couldn't like that that was not ever on the table, like the idea that maybe I wouldn't go back to work because I like work and <laughs> I need money. <laughs> um, right. So, you know, I have a lot of friends, you know, who have babies that are just slightly older than mine. And they're in that kind of moment where they're like realizing, huh, kind of working part time. Actually, if you say you're working part time, they kind of think that you're available full time and you're paying me part time. And I really want to spend more time with my baby. And you know, where you have the second kid and then you're evaluating whether you want to keep working. I think that's when really the hard money stuff stuff hits. It's like after you've gotten over the big hump of like, you know, the childbirth and the first months and then you're then you're trying to figure out who am I? What is my identity? That's not something you can figure out on a spreadsheet, unfortunately. It's just like it's just it's just the thing that you have to just keep constantly listening to in your gut. Like, does this feel like I'm doing the right thing? So even if it's best case scenario, let's say financially, you're in a happy marriage, you have two incomes, you have great health care, you're bringing a life into the world, and that is a pretty fraught experience. It's a huge decision that most people don't take lightly, as is the decision to have an abortion. 
Unfortunately, as we'll learn after the break, money plays an outsized role in how society decides who gets to make the choice. Stay tuned. The cultural conversation around abortion often turns on the word choice. But too often, we frame the decision about whether or not to carry a pregnancy to term as a moral choice. The opportunity to ruminate on the philosophical ramifications of childbirth is a luxury many people with uteruses can't afford. They're backed into an economic corner that leaves them without many options. Noelle Leone, who actually wrote into Bad With Money last season and suggested this as an episode, is a volunteer with the D.C. Abortion Fund, and she hears their stories all the time. People tend to call into abortion funds. I, I think sometimes, and I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't speak for everybody who calls in, but many people are dealing with complicated financial situations. I've sometimes had callers apologize to me for calling and asking for money for something that we say that we do. We say, you know, we are called an abortion fund. And yet, um, even though we're called an abortion fund, people are still still sometimes say, I'm so sorry, you know, I, I almost, I, I wish I could pay for this, but um, I can't, and I'm really sorry that I have to ask you for money. And occasionally we will even have folks who are possibly upset with us that we can't give them more, which frankly I understand because we are an abortion fund, so you would think, I don't blame people for thinking, yeah, they're going to cover it 100%, that's what they're there for. So there's these weird, it really spans the wide spectrum of, of financial situations and financial expectations from people who are calling in. So why did you, how did you start working in this, in the reproductive rights field and with the DC Abortion Fund? The thing that made me want to work in reproductive rights and health and justice was actually working at another abortion fund um, out in California in college because I realized that there are certain rights that we have on paper, such as the right to decide to have an abortion or the right to decide whether and when and how to have a child. However, in reality, uh, many people can't access those rights. And it was working on an abortion fund that helped me realize how many barriers there are, many, many of them financial, to people actually being able to access the rights that supposedly they have. Can you give me some examples of some of the cases that you encounter or how many factors in, like from, you know, as a person who's like on the ground floor? I feel a little wary of kind of giving any one person as an example of what it means yeah, yeah. of like what, you know, why people are choosing to have an abortion. But I will talk to folks who are um, younger and who maybe are on like their parents' insurance and don't know whether their parents' insurance maybe covers abortion and they don't want to talk to their parents about it because that would involve talking to their parents about the fact that they are pregnant and want, and are deciding to have an abortion. And so they are trying to figure out how to pay out of pocket. And then there are folks who are older and who have had children before and who are just in a really difficult financial situation and know they cannot at, their point, at this point in their lives, um, you know, move forward with having a child and... They need help figuring out how to get from point A to point B and have and be able to have the abortion that they need. So they call in. So you go and work there and they call in and give their whole case. Like what what happens when someone calls into the fund? 
there are abortion funds all over the country, and they work a little bit differently from each other. Ours is all volunteer run, so that means that we don't have an active hotline. Like sometimes people call it a warm line, I think, where they folks can call in, leave a message with their callback number, and then individual case managers call people back and say, and and you know they'll call all call people back when I get home from work or or whatever and and talk to them then and I have to ask you know a series of questions to kind of get at um, what an individual's situation is so that we can figure out what exactly they need and how to how to solve it um, and this involves asking some what feel to me for or have did feel for a long time like rather intrusive questions like what's your income do you have a job? Is it full-time? Is it part-time? Do you have insurance? How many people live in your household? Like all these questions that make me feel really uncomfortable because I am I live in a world where people don't talk about that sort of thing. So it was actually interesting for a while. I would perceive myself sometimes to be more uncomfortable asking the questions and sometimes my callers were answering the questions. Sometimes that reflects like a difference in privilege between me and some of the folks that I talk to on the line because people who are like living in poverty and, and, and accessing government benefits have to disclose often so much financial in- information in order to get benefits that, um, that sometimes people become really accustomed to it. And that's something that I think people who think about money as like a secret thing don't fully realize necessarily about folks who are living paycheck to paycheck and needing to access government benefits. So what determines if they get funds and how much funds they get? Well, that um, we don't have, we don't turn people away because of any, because they like make too much money or anything. We try to help every single person who calls. It is really difficult because we also have limited funding in the D.C. abortion fund. You know, we are fundraising all the time and as all funds are, and we are actually pretty, like, okay, well-resourced for abortion funds in the country. And yet still, you know, we can't fund people's entire procedures. So sometimes we will, like, work with other abortion funds in the region and try to kind of pull together enough to at least help the person. But otherwise, what we're trying to do is talk to that person about other ways that they might be able to raise funds. Like, are there people in your life that you could ask? Um, Could you ask, you know, 10 friends for $20 each? And that's $200, which can go a long way. Um, I don't want to ask 10 people for anything. Oh, I know. I mean... (laughs) I mean, sometimes people are like, no, I can't talk to anybody about this. And, you know, I say, oh, yeah, I totally understand. That's that's fine. I just have to ask. Like, I have to ask you to think about your social network. Or it'll be the case where the problem is not stigma, like they're fine talking to their friends about something, but everybody in their network is also living paycheck to paycheck and, frankly, does not have $20 to give. I remember reading... Some time ago, there was an article um, in The Atlantic that was talking about this study that found that many people in the quote-unquote middle class said, I think it was something like 47% didn't think, like could not pull together $400 in an emergency without selling or pawning something, which is a huge number of people who can't pull, who would not be able to pull together the cost, the minimum cost of an abortion. It ranges let me say generally from around like $400 to it can be as much as like $10,000. Yeah. So how could they pay for a kid? Exactly. 
you know, we should have systems on both sides of of the decision-making or all sides of the decision-making process. Like, we should have systems that that say to people who become pregnant, you will have the financial supports you need to move forward with a pregnancy and childcare. And we should have systems that say, and you will have the financial support you need to be able to decide not to move forward with this pregnancy. I think that the general public and policymakers have kind of a problem of talking about and thinking about pregnancy in this binary of like, it's either planned or it's not planned. You know, you're everybody is in a state of either planning to have a child or actively avoiding having a child. And I think that that dichotomy really drives a lot of the rhetoric and the policymaking that we have around reproductive health care and also contributes to kind of stereotypes that we have about who should be pregnant or who shouldn't be. It's this false idea of like, the planned pregnancy is this woman who's like makes her husband come home from work to have sex with her at this time because she's ovulating and she's yeah. very planned and she lives in a nice house in the suburbs and it's very meticulous planning and she wants to have a baby and unplanned is obviously some sort of marginalized person who is very like just like willy nilly with stuff and they don't know who the father is and blah 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 like it's these very like um in boxes idea and that's like maybe two yeah. percent of the people. Right, right. Like on both ends. It's a small, it's a small proportion. There's tons of people for whom like a positive pregnancy test when they weren't expecting it is not the end of the world. I mean, this is just so crazy to me that we need to have our own funds for this kind of thing. And I know that on top of, you know, the emotional stress, like nobody is like gleefully going. I mean, Obviously, people have different levels of emotional investment in it, but like nobody's like gleefully going to do. It's just so weird to be like this medical procedure. Can yeah. you, you know, we're not going to cover this specific thing. It's just a decision. It's just like a part of people's lives sometimes. And and we also have this idea that people have are making really overwrought making really wrought decisions that it's very hard and and you know for some people it is hard to make a decision around abortion for, for for many many people it's actually not and we shouldn't be like creating this stigma by withholding funds which withholding that funds increases the stigma of course and um, it's completely you're exactly right and it's completely an economic issue because once the children are you know basically forced to be born um, then there's stigma again on them needing help. And then, you know, then they get ro- yeah. like rang over the coals for welfare. And then, That's um, totally you true. know, yes. So it basically becomes an issue of like, who can afford to have sex? Yeah, that's totally true. And so we have people sending the message in, in policymaking circles and uh, from on the right saying like, you know, basically if you can't afford to have children, if you haven't reached that X threshold of like enough money to be able to commit right now to supporting to being fine for the next 18 plus years, then you can't have sex. I think it seems just hateful to poor people, honestly. Like, I th- it just oh, my seems... God. Yes, it is. It is. I think that reducing abortion stigma is anti-poverty work. Increasing access to reproductive health services and the supports that exist for people who make any kind of decision around pregnancy and children, that is anti-poverty work.
Noelle's experience is unfortunately not unique. Tara Culp Ressler is a reporter for Think Progress who's written extensively about the crisis around abortion access. She says the situation is dire all around the country and is likely to worsen under the Trump administration. So there's this whole category of state laws that conservative states have passed that essentially create more hurdles for patients themselves to jump through. So these are things like requiring patients to wait a certain amount of time, 24 hours, 48 hours, sometimes even 72 hours in some states, um, you know, basically telling people, nah, you need to think about this a little bit more. You, you Maybe you don't want an abortion. Go to a clinic, talk to a doctor, and then wait this fixed amount of time just in case you change your mind. Um, you know, that's that's a huge burden for people who maybe don't have the time or the resources to make that additional trip to the clinic or to take time off work. Um, So that's a big problem. There are other ways that states try to do this, too. A lot of states will make a patient look at an ultrasound um, before before they can proceed with an abortion procedure. So that's another kind of emotionally manipulative tactic to try to convince a patient to change their mind. And then there are a whole host of state laws that aren't as focused on the patient and are more focused on the abortion provider and the abortion clinics themselves and making it harder and harder for clinics to provide care. Um, These targeted regulations against abortion providers are trap laws. Onerous restrictions like forcing abortion clinics to adhere to building code standards that are completely unnecessary. So a lot of these laws will say that Abortion clinics need to upgrade their facilities to be in line with with surgical centers, um, which requires doing things like widening their hallways, changing their air filtration systems, um, even things that seem very unrelated to patient care like building bigger parking lots. Um, Really expensive changes that don't have anything to do with making abortion safer but just are designed to make it really expensive and really difficult to operate an abortion clinic. Um, And so those are huge problems too because the end result of those laws are that some abortion providers will have to go out of business and they'll shut down their clinics and that will just result in fewer and fewer um, points of access for people who need that care. When thinking about how much it costs to get an abortion, it's really important to remember that, um, you know, we're not just talking about the price of the medical procedure itself. Um, you know, that's what most people would, would think about. You know, you probably pay a couple hundred dollars um, to to get an abortion like you would another medical procedure. But, um, you know, because these state lawmakers all across the country have enacted an array of restrictions making abortion more difficult to access. Um, it's really created this this complicated maze of red tape that makes accessing an abortion a really difficult feat, um, particularly for for low income people um, who may be living in states where there aren't that many abortion clinics that remain open. They might have to drive a really long way to get to the nearest clinic. Um, Of course, if you drive, if you have to drive a really long way to get to a clinic, that means you have to take off work from your job. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're not a salary employee, if you're someone like a fast food worker who's paid hourly, that means that you're losing the wages that you otherwise would have earned at that job. Um, That means that you're paying for the gas money to get to the clinic. If you already have a child, which the majority of people who get abortions in the United States do, most, most of them are already parents. Um, that means that you have to find childcare 
for that child. You have to pay a babysitter to watch them. Um, depending how far away you have to travel in your state, you might even have to pay for a night at a cheap motel near an abortion clinic because you can't make the trip in one day. So those are all of the kinds of costs that stack up. And we're not even, we haven't even gotten to the exam room yet. We haven't even gotten to the clinic. We're not right. even talking about the medical procedure. Um, so there are really so many hidden costs that make this procedure, particularly for low-income people and particularly for people living in red states that are really hostile to abortion. Um, it just makes it so much more expensive for them. Yeah. I mean, the the craziest thing to me is they don't want you to have an abortion, but they're not taking into account that you, let's say, might have other kids or you're paycheck to paycheck, so you can't afford a kid, another kid. And then, but then they also want to kind of take away birth control. Like the the law is poor people are not allowed to have sex. That's the rule. Like that's the world yes. we live in. That's the, that's the like. Exactly. Like, it's a dystopia. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, you talk a lot on this podcast about how the system is stacked against you and reproductive health is definitely an area where the system is stacked against you. And particularly if you're someone who's low income, um, there's just no way for you to win. You know, that's what we're seeing with kind of the current debates going on in Congress right now and lawmakers trying to do things like defund Planned Parenthood or you know, slash the federal dollars that are going to family planning services. Um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it really keeps people in a very untenable situation where they're not able to access the preventative care that they need. They're not able to afford to care for another child. But it's a real financial burden to try to access an abortion, too. Do low income women seek out abortions at a higher rate than middle or upper class women or no? Yes, they do. They seek out abortions at a higher rate um, and in general have have less consistent access to the health services that would help prevent unplanned pregnancies. Right. Um, right. So so really the the most salient statistic here is the rate of unplanned pregnancy. Low-income women have a higher rate of unplanned pregnancy than um, women in higher economic classes um, because women who aren't poor have more access to health care and can afford birth control more easily. One of the most insidious things about our policies around abortion care is that people who oppose abortion have really tried to segregate it from the rest of medical care and have tried to make it a service that insurance providers won't cover. Um, and so you have to pay out of your pocket for it. But there's also been some pretty interesting research conducted by the Guttmacher Institute, um, which tracks this type of stuff, that most women, even if their insurance provider does cover their abortion procedure, a lot of them are choosing to pay for it out of pocket anyway. They don't want to use their insurance because they they just want to keep it more private. They don't want mm -hmm. it to be traced back to them and they don't necessarily want their friends and family members to know that they've had an abortion. Right. So is it just preventative care that um, goes into it or is it that like low income women often didn't have access to sex ed? Are there other factors that contribute to the reality? Definitely access to sex ed is a huge problem in this country, you know, that cuts across class lines, certainly. We have terrible sex ed standards here in the United yeah. States and a lot of research that teenagers are not learning enough about birth control and not learning enough about how to protect themselves. Um, so that's certainly true. That can be obviously exacerbated in red states and you know, more conservative areas where, um, you know, the, the the education standards are just kind of held to a more conservative standard. Um, right. That's definitely true. The way that we fund our plan, our family planning system um, 
is is also an issue. It's a you know title Title Ten, um, which is the federal. Uh, funding stream for family planning clinics is a discretionary program. So it doesn't have a consistent level of funding. As I'm sure you've noticed in recent years, it's a big target for Republican lawmakers and they kind of crusade against Title X funding and, you know, try to try to slash funding for Planned Parenthood clinics and other family planning clinics. That's a huge problem. Um, We just don't have enough providers to really keep up with the burden of all of the people of, of, of reproductive age who really need access to these services. And then, you know, we don't have enough abortion clinics in this country, too. So it's a it's an issue with preventative health care. But then it's also a big issue, you know, once people are confronted with an unplanned pregnancy, a lot of people struggling to get connected with the care they need. And, you know, because the majority of women who are seeking abortion care are low income, um, you know, they can't necessarily deal with a really high unexpected expense. They don't necessarily have between $500 and $1,000 to just be able to spend on an abortion out of pocket. And so it takes them time to save up the money. They maybe have to ask their friends and family for help. They have to scrape together, um, you know, some extra savings from their paychecks. And as the weeks crawl by, um, you know, they get later and later in their pregnancy. And abortion as a procedure gets more and more expensive the later on you get in your pregnancy. And so there is some research that has found that, you know, there are women who simply run out of time. They actually are denied abortion care because it takes them so so many weeks to save up the money for it that by the time that they have collected the resources, they're past the legal limit, um, which is just heartbreaking because, you know, if you can't save up the money for an abortion procedure, it's hard to see how you're going to be able to scrape together the funds to care for another child. That's what I was about to ask. If you need to do that just to have like a 500 or or $1,000 procedure, how could you have a kid? Exactly. And it really, um, you know, it really just furthers the cycle of poverty. And that kind of feeds back into this idea that, um, you know, you have this cycle of low income women who are basically trapped in um, this cycle of unplanned pregnancies and slipping further into poverty. And that's another kind of heartbreaking finding that researchers have documented that women who have unplanned pregnancies and then are unable to obtain the abortion that they wanted to have – They do. They slip deeper into poverty. It's harder for them to accomplish their professional goals, to grow their salaries, and to kind of do the things that they wanted to do with their lives because all of a sudden they're having to deal with this this unplanned pregnancy and growing their family in a way that they didn't want to. Yeah. I mean, that's also the thing is like their circumstances that they're not considering if the the baby isn't viable, the fetus isn't viable, or if the person was raped, or if, you know, it's a, a, a person with female reproductive organs who does not identify as female, or like all these kinds of things that are just like very nuanced that are not taken into account. It's this very like black and white thing that doesn't exist in real life, especially with people's financial situations and with people's like personal histories and and situation like the complexity of the situations that are going on. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, abortion has been such a hot button political issue for so long that I think the way it often gets talked about in our society is in these very kind of black and white terms that yeah, that don't capture the nuance of what seeking this kind of health care looks like in people's actual lives. Um, And that's a big problem. And that's why you're able to have Republican lawmakers building entire platforms out of 
talking about baby killing and defunding Planned Parenthood, and we're not having meaningful conversations about you know, what these policies are actually looking like in real people's lives and how they are actually harming low-income women and other people who are able to get pregnant and how they're just perpetuating cycles of poverty. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it would really help to, to start having more complex and more nuanced conversations about abortion and conversations that bring this economic piece um, into play because reproductive rights issues really are economic issues, and that's not always an aspect of it that gets included in the bigger conversation. So as we're recording this, I was just traveling a lot for work, and I'm exhausted. And I can't help thinking that if I had a baby with me, what would that be like? And I do a lot of thinking. Like if sometimes if I'm out and I'm buying groceries or if I'm out driving my car to get repairs or whatever it is, I think about adding a baby to that situation. And I think about what it would look like to walk around also needing to pay for a baby's food and also needing to change a baby's diaper and also adding that on top of my daily routine of all the things I need to get done and all the expenses that I have. It doesn't look pretty sometimes. It's a way more complex choice than I think we give credit for. It's not a black and white issue. And I don't think that the people that are making the legislation surrounding women's health have any idea what actual women go through and what actual people with uteruses deal with when they give birth and the poverty cycle that it creates. And, you know, I I have money now, but if I got pregnant and I couldn't afford an abortion, how could I afford to have a child in this Silver Lake apartment? You guys haven't seen my apartment, but this is not a place for a baby. There's a lot of action figures. I'm just realizing I have so many toys in my apartment that a baby would love. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money this is the show for them. Also, tell your friends who have, like, 14 kids and live in the Midwest and probably have a better life than me. Ask them what that's like. It sounds pretty fun. Did I just describe the Brady Bunch? Maybe I did. We're part of the Planetly Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Andy Bowers is Planetly's chief content officer. That was definitely... No, the Brady Bunch had six kids. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Did the Brady Bunch live in the Midwest? Where did the Brady Bunch live? I don't remember. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. See you next week. Bad with money.